Please remain standing as you are able. For the reading of God's word, Acts chapter 1, verses 4 and 5, and verse 8. On one occasion, while he was eating with them, he gave them this command. This is Jesus with his disciples. Do not leave Jerusalem, but wait for the gift my father promised, which you have heard me speak about. For John baptized with water, but in a few days you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit. He said to them, It is not for you to know the times or dates the Father has set by his own authority, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. Jesus says, Wait. Let's pray for understanding. Heavenly Father, we pray that you would give us understanding of this passage, but not mere understanding, that in that understanding we would be turned, we would be changed, we would rely upon the strength and power of the Holy Spirit to be your witnesses. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Please be seated. This is the second week of Missions Month. Missions Month is not the only month we do missions or talk about missions or support missions. It's the month that we emphasize the mission of the church for all the year. And it's an equipping time for us that we would get our, our hearts and minds right and be reminded of the call of Jesus to us. Now, last week we began Missions Month. It's the month of June and there are five Sundays uh, in this month. Uh, Marty led off uh, in week one with their first point, when we're told by Jesus, go and make disciples, we need to realize a few things. First, we cannot go until we come. We come to Jesus. If we don't come to Jesus personally, ourselves, if we don't receive him, if we don't know him, if we don't experience him, we have nothing to share. Jesus calls his disciples, follow me. And that will make you fishers of men. That was what Marty's uh, message was last week. He spent three years with his disciples, teaching them, showing them, training them, so that he would send them out into the world. He led them after three years to the cross. See, he didn't just teach them a way of life. As they followed him, he led them to the cross where he paid for their sins and for ours. And then he rose from the dead. They were amazed at that. And at that point, they could have been ready to go out and say, He is risen. But Jesus said, Wait. Wait. Now, the way the, the world thinks is a little bit different way. We can picture the Olympic athlete. I, I love watching the Olympics on TV. And they say, On your mark. And we go, whoa, I, I, I can't. You see, there's something lonely about an athlete. When you're looking down that lane of the track, or when you're going to catch that pass, you have this feeling, that it's up to you, there's nobody that can help you. You do the best you can, and you hope it's good enough. 
That's the, the athlete's mindset. Now, the Apostle Paul uses that in a very positive way where he sets his goal on, on finishing the race, following Christ, being faithful to the end, with laying aside everything that hinders. So it's a positive image, but in this case, it's a negative image that I'm putting before you. If you think it's all up to you, go, do your best, and hope it's good enough. That is not what Jesus tells us to do. It's not on your mark, get set, go. It's come, wait, then go. The come is Jesus' call, come to me, follow me. And he leads us to the cross where we find forgiveness of our sins. And then he says to his disciples in this passage, wait. Do not leave Jerusalem, but wait for the gift my father promised, which you have heard me speak about. For John baptized with water, but in a few days you'll be baptized with the Holy Spirit. And again, he says, you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. If you've been a Christian for any length of time at all, These are such familiar verses to you that you can begin to think, I already know this message, I already get it, I've heard it before. That's not the point here. My question is, do you understand what it means and how it applies to you? There's some serious confusions around this passage. And confusions can mislead or even paralyze. One confusion that is very common in the church is that we just somehow lift up the disciples' experience and think, well, we need to do exactly the same thing. The disciples came to Jesus three years before when he called them, follow me. And they could say, we are followers of Christ. And Jesus is telling them, but you still need to receive the Holy Spirit. Then you can go out. There are many Christians that say, you can be a Christian. You may have received Christ. But have you received the Holy Spirit? There's a level of ordinary Christian life and then super ordinary, powerful life if you've received the Holy Spirit. And then we'll get into it a little bit uh, later that the sign of that is, have, can you speak in tongues? That's the mark of the more powerful life. That's confusion around this passage. We don't, uh, we don't find ourselves in church saying that we belong to Christ, but we need to wait until we receive the Holy Spirit, because that's not what this passage is about. This passage is a great turning point in history that for us has already happened. For the disciples, and they were living as followers of Jesus in a sense in the Old Testament age. They were with Jesus in his earthly ministry before he made atonement for sin. Atonement means covering. He paid for our sins. He covered our debt. And he broke its power. When they were following Jesus, that had not happened yet. They were still doing the sacrifices and the temples and participating in the feasts of the Old Testament. See, the whole Old Testament age was a time when salvation was promised. But it had not been accomplished. And so God made his presence known to his people by dwelling in. In their midst, the pillar of fire by night, the pillar of cloud by day led the people of Israel through the wilderness. The Holy Spirit came in glory upon the temple, uh, the tabernacle first, and then the temple 
And God made his dwelling place in the midst of his people. But atonement for sin had not been accomplished, so there was this veil in the temple that separated the people from the most holy place. And it was into that place that was just signified, it was represented by the temple in the Old Testament, that Jesus went into the true holiest place, made sacrifice for sin on our behalf, and accomplished it for us. Then Jesus tells his disciples, Tells his disciples a new stage is beginning. Before, I was just with you. The Holy Spirit would come upon David. He would become upon the judges. He would come and do mighty things in the Old Testament. But in the New Testament, after Christ has accomplished our forgiveness of sins and made us his children, he says, you'll be the temple of the Holy Spirit. We don't have a temple in our midst, we are the, the dwelling place of God himself. And Jesus tells his disciples, wait until I ascend into heaven and the Father and I send the Holy Spirit to indwell you and to empower you to do what I call you to do. We don't wait anymore in that sense for that to happen in the future. That has happened. Now, if you, Romans 8, 9 tells us if you don't have the spirit of Christ, you don't belong to Christ. That verse is definitive. You can't belong to Christ and not have the spirit of Christ. If you have received Christ as Savior and Lord, the way he comes into your life is through the Holy Spirit and you are the very dwelling place of God. That has happened. And we have received the Holy Spirit. We have received the power of God at work in our lives. It's, it's the first expression of that is our desire to embrace Christ as Lord and Savior. But there's another confusion that we can fall into, and that is on the other side of the spectrum, that we think, I've received Jesus, so I have the Holy Spirit. So when I hear about living by the power of the Spirit, all that is all that charismatic stuff over there, we just get it right. And it's just doctrinaire. It's just what we believe and not so much what we experience. What does it mean to live by the power of the Holy Spirit? What does it mean to go out relying upon the Holy Spirit, to be empowered to do what God calls us to do that we could never accomplish in ourselves? What does that look like? That's what's before us this morning. To wait for us is not to wait in time, but to rely upon the Holy Spirit, not to get ahead of him in our own strength. And you know what that means. To get ahead means when we are concerned about our children growing up, we just want to jump down their throats, don't we? God, you know, we don't think about God reaching their hearts. We think, I'm going to reach their heart. And that fist going down the throat to grab the heart doesn't feel very good, right? That's getting ahead. That's not relying on the strength and power of the Holy Spirit. That is relying on our efforts to manipulate and to control and to make it happen. We can do that in our churches and our ministries. This is how we're going. These are the, the gimmicks and the gadgets we're going to rely upon to reach people, to emotionally manipulate them to come to Christ because somehow it's up to us. That's, that's a big confusion too. What does it look like to live by the power of the Spirit? Now what about tongues? In Acts, the demonstration of power was in this miracle of Pentecost that they spoke in tongues. Many would say today that that's the sign that you 
have the power of the Holy Spirit and that you speak in tongues and you live on the supernatural plane while other Christians live on the ordinary plane. Have you ever encountered that? Have you ever been uh, pressed with that from a friend who, who believes that way? Have you ever thought, well, what's wrong with me if I, if I don't do it? I, when I was in high school, we had a, I went to a, a meeting and a charismatic speaker was talking about Maybe you're a Christian, but have you received the Holy Spirit? And if you've received the Holy Spirit, the sign will be you speak in tongues. And I went home and I prayed, Lord, give me tongues. Nothing happened. And I prayed again, Lord, I want to have the fullness of the Spirit. I was just listening to the message. I, 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 give me tongues. And nothing happened. And I prayed a third time. And somehow it reminded me in the Bible, I'd already learned the lesson about the Paul praying three times. And I went to my youth leader and said, I prayed for this and nothing happened. And he said, he pointed me to the verse in Corinthians, the Holy Spirit gives the gifts as he wills. I think the speaker was wrong saying this is what you need to claim and, and everybody does it. The Holy Spirit gives it as he wills. And if he's saying no to you, then he's saying no to you. That, that helped me at, at that point. But I wanted to follow Christ. I wanted to follow Christ in the power of the Spirit. And there was confusion in my heart and mind about what that meant. I present to you this morning, and I don't have time. I, I thought the early service was long. We had new members this morning. What can I leave out? And I'm sure, now I got you all grateful to me right now. <laughs> so we'll save the study of it for a later time uh, with different episodes in the Old Testament. When every time God would advance his relationship with his people on earth, he would give some kind of miraculous sign. Let me just point to a couple instead of walking it through. One, when God called Abraham out from his home and said, follow me, he, he promised to Abraham that he would make from Abraham a great nation through whom all the nations would be, would be blessed. And Abraham's seed, his offspring, was centered in Christ himself. It was through the nation that, that God brought from Abraham that Christ would come into the world and he is a savior for all the world. Well, what was the miracle that God gave Abraham so that we can know Abraham wasn't just making this up? Abraham was an old man and so his wife was an old woman. They were a past childbearing age. The, the fact that he would have a baby was a miracle. And Abraham couldn't believe it. At first he got a, his uh, handmaid. He first said his servant would be the father. He'd be his representative. And then Sarah said, well, take the handmaid. And they, they did all sorts of different things, not relying on God's power to accomplish the promise. But God said, that's not what I'm talking about. I will give you a, a, a son so that you can know it is my power at work in bringing from your offspring a nation through whom your seed would come, Jesus, who would bless all the world. And that miraculous birth to a hundred-year-old man in the barren life, is that normative for Christians? I hope not. <laughs> we babysat our grandchildren uh, in the last couple of weeks, and we thought, we're, we were young when we did this the first time. We couldn't do it over again. But it's not normative, but it was an initiatory sign proving that God says, yes, you are my people. Without developing it, there was a time with Moses when God said, bring 70 elders to join you in leading the people of Israel. And they praised God with ecstatic speech. And he gave them an attendant 
attendant miracle. See, ecstatic speech itself is not miraculous. A lot of pagan religions do it. People, Christians can fake it. There are a lot of people that do. Uh, matter of fact, you can, if you want to look up a movie, in my teenage years, a movie named Marjo, M-A-R-J-O-E, was a, a little Pentecostal preacher that at four years old gains national notoriety for doing a, a wedding because they believed that God had done a miracle and sent this gift for he's this young preacher. When he turned 18, he, declined, he uh, decried it all and exposed his parents. They would dunk his head in the water in the bathtub, teaching him the mannerisms of the preacher until he got it. And then they could claim the miracle while they were counting the money behind uh, the uh, in closed doors behind the meeting tent. That was Marjo's own words. He was so cynical about Christianity because of the abuse of it in this. See, ecstatic speech is not miraculous. But with Moses and Eldad and uh, with Moses and the seventy elders, there were two that didn't get the invitation. And Eldad and Medad came uh, were back in the camp, and when the the 70 elders, the Holy Spirit came upon them and they prophesied with this ecstatic speech. Eldad and me and I at the same time spontaneously praised God too in the same way. And say, so, how did this happen? It showed God's hand at work because it was an attendant miracle to the sign. When uh, Saul became king, he was the first king of Israel. It was a new stage in the people of God that they would have a king. He was a king like all the other nations had. He, did, he trusted in his own strength, not in God. But he prophesied. The, the kind of prophecy falling among the bands of prophets was not Isaiah, thus saith the Lord. It was the ecstatic speech. He was praising God. And people looked at that and thought, this is strange. Because Saul was spiritually banal. He was just he had no spiritual sense at all. And for him to fall among the prophets and prophesy... That was a marvelous act. And it's sort of like saying, is Hugh Hefner a preacher now? What happened? And so there was something miraculous about that. But it was a sign that happened once and didn't continue. With the 70 elders, it happened once and didn't continue. With Saul at once, it didn't continue. At Pentecost, this is a sign that if these you know, worshiping, devout Jews who gathered for the Feast of Pentecost... If they were familiar with the Old Testament, they would have recognized God does a miracle when he starts something new. But it's not a continual normative sign. It's just his badge of approval that this is his doing. The miracle of Pentecost was when they praised God with ecstatic speech. Everyone heard it in their own language. That was the miracle. Everyone was amazed and perplexed and wondered, how can this be? And Peter preached the gospel and he said, this Jesus whom you crucified is both Lord and Christ. And they were cut to the heart and said, what shall we do? He said, repent and be baptized every one of you. This is for you and your children and for those who are far off the Gentiles. That's the new new stage. So they saw the miracle of God. By the time it got to the Corinthian church, the Corinthians were trying to keep Pentecost alive, but there was no miracle involved. They're just praising God ecstatically. They were truly praising God. Paul doesn't say you're not Christians. He says, you're worshiping with your spirit, but worship with your mind also. See, ecstatic speech is non-syntactical. It's not words. It's not grammar. It's just out loud. And we all do it to some degree. When you laugh, you're not using words, are you? But you're expressing emotion. When you cry, you're not using words but you're expressing emotion. 
ecstatic speech is using consonants and vowels, but you're not using words and grammar and syntax. But you're expressing emotion. And the Corinthian church, the Apostle Paul doesn't say, y'all are a bunch of heathen and the devil's doing this. He says, you're worshiping God and you're worshiping in your spirit, but it's, it's not miraculous. It's just ecstatic speech. Put it into words so others can understand. You see, the, the sign of Pentecost had already ceased before the Corinthians were trying to continue it. And Paul says, if, if someone comes in, who doesn't understand or is an unbeliever. See, this relates to Missions Month. What's the witness here? At Pentecost, they were amazed and perplexed. They were cut to the heart. 3,000 came to Christ because they saw God at work. And the Corinthian church, he said, if someone comes in who doesn't understand, and you're all speaking in tongues, this is ecstatic speech, but nobody can understand, will they not say, well, what did they say at Pentecost? How can this be? We're amazed and perplexed. What's happening? That's not what they say in Corinth. Paul said, will they not say, you're out of your mind. The miracle wasn't happening anymore. You see, when we get confused about this, we start thinking, if I could just have this miracle, if I could just do this, we'll try to apply it to any other miracles of Jesus. The sign that you're a Christian so you can walk on water. That one's harder to fake. Harder to just produce. You can't do it. He did it to show us he was the son of God. He gave this miracle to the church to say, God is in this. But it's not a continual sign. Paul said, but if you prophesy and others proclaim the truth, if you explain the gospel, then people will be cut to the heart and drawn to Christ. That's the message to Corinth. So that's a brief overview there. If you want to go deeper into it, I'll be happy to any time. But I don't want to, to get stuck on that and stop there. Just don't want you to be confused about this to think, I need to wait for the Holy Spirit, which means I need, to, I need to figure out how to speak in tongues. No, the Holy Spirit has come upon his church. The proof of that is in the Pentecostal experience of the miracle that was there. And if we have Christ, we have the Spirit of Christ. He's at work in us. But what does it mean to be filled with the Spirit? The Bible says, do not be drunk with wine, but be filled with the Spirit. When we're drunk with wine, it controls our thoughts, it controls our actions, uh, we, we lose control of ourselves. To be filled with the Spirit is to be under the Spirit's control. It's to be transformed by the work of the Spirit in our lives. Mary and I, as we were preparing for the dinner at our house on Friday night, started talking. We were just you know, working on different things. I started telling her what I'd be preaching about. And, and then Saturday, we found this book. Uh, Mary found this book uh, from her parents. It's Martin Lloyd-Jones' Living Water. And these are the reject sermons from Martin Lloyd-Jones. I have to explain myself. This was published in 2009. He died in 1981. These were previously unpublished sermons, and he had many, many books already published. So these were not his favorites, anybody's favorites. We started reading it. If these are the worst sermons of Martin Lloyd-Jones, I'm just ashamed, and I just quit. There's no way. It is wonderful. He's talking about John chapter 4. When uh, Jesus goes uh, through Samaria, and he goes to the well, his disciples go into town, and he meets the woman at the well in Samaria. And this Jewish man speaks to the Samaritan woman and says, give me some water to drink. And she's astonished. What's a Jewish man doing talking to her? And uh, she says, why do you ask me? And he says, if, if you asked me for water, 
Well, let me just read it to you in uh, John chapter 4. Jesus said, If you knew the gift of God and who it is that asks you for a drink, you would have asked him and he would have given you living water. Jesus says, Sir, you have nothing to draw with and the well is deep. Where can you get this living water? Are you greater than our father Jacob, who gave us the well and drank from it himself, as did also his sons and his flocks and herds? Jesus answered, Everyone who drinks this water, this water will be thirsty again. But whoever drinks the water I give him will never thirst. Indeed, the water I give him will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. And there's more to the conversation. The woman doesn't quite get it yet. She says, give me this water so I don't have to come back to the well. She is so spiritually dull, although she's pretty smart. If you look at her reasoning, she's a clever person. You can be very smart and spiritually dull because she's trying to see everything in here and now material terms and not catching what Jesus is saying, that there's spiritual satisfaction for our soul that can't be bought with anything else, but can only be given by him through his spirit. It's a well of living water that wells up and satisfies the soul. Do you have and experience that satisfaction? Martin Luther Jones goes on to describe, uh, to talk about uh, Christians and uh, how we often live as though well, we just live in spiritual dullness. Why don't we grow up? And it has to do with evangelism because what we have to share can be so meager nobody's interested. Because it hasn't changed us. Let me read what he says. We are so frequently in trouble and raise these hindrances that prevent us from receiving this well of water that springs up to everlasting life. But why do we do this? This to me is a most important matter. It is a great tragedy that though this offer is here before us, the very thing we stand in need of, the secret of all the saints and the noblest souls that this world has ever seen, that though it is all offered to us by our Lord as he offered it to the woman of Samaria, yet so many of us are burdened, troubled, unhappy, conscious of failure, and without consolation. What a tragedy it is that people who are meant to live as princes are living as paupers, that those who are meant to be receiving the unsearchable riches of Christ should be living in penury, poverty. It's like the Jed Clampett of all of the spiritual world. You know, the Beverly Hillbillies. I'll tell you all the story about a man named Jeb. Poor mountaineer, but he kept his family fed. Then one day he was shooting at some food, and up from the ground came the bubbling crude. All that is. You, you get that? He was barely able to feed his family, living on top of a vast reservoir of wealth. Does that describe us spiritually as Christians? Lloyd-Jones goes on to say, my friends, this ought not to be. And this is important not only from the standpoint of our own happiness and well-being as Christians, but still more in view of the state of the world outside. People are unhappy. They do not know what to do or where to turn. And here here are we claiming to be Christians. They look at us and think, can these people help us? 
But if they see that we react as they do, that we have no comfort and consolation, that we have nothing that differentiates us from them and lifts us up above our circumstances, then they will not listen to us. They will say, these people are all talk. There's nothing in it. And they will not be interested. So from every standpoint, it is vital that we should examine ourselves in the light of this kind of hindrance, this spiritual dullness and slowness that remains on the earth on a material level and fails to realize what is being offered to us in Christ Jesus. Why, I ask, are we like this? He says, we become new creatures in Christ, but our old nature is still with us. And that old nature is a a, a creature of habit. The first reason we don't really live like this is habits persist. It's hard to build new habits, good habits. It's easy to slide into bad habits. You know, that's unfair. It's easy to slide into bad habits, hard to build new habits. And the habits of the old nature persist in their lives. So if you're going on automatic pilot as a Christian, you're not going to be living by the power of the Spirit. And you'll stay in the same unhappiness and and discontent that you had before. That's the habit of the way you think. Uh, Second, he says that uh, is a feeling that we already have everything. We receive it all at conversion. You know, when a baby is born, it is exciting. It is an occasion for joy. When the 20-year-old acts like a baby, it's not so fun anymore. How many of us as Christians that are 10, 20, 30, 40, 50 years old spiritually as Christians still act like spiritual babies because we haven't grown up in our faith. We haven't been changed and transformed by the power of the Spirit to think differently, to feel differently, to to see the world in the light of of the gospel of Christ and all of God's word. Third, he just has so much good stuff, but i got to list this one. Another cause is laziness. A failure to exercise our senses, a failure to apply ourselves to the truth and to apply the truth itself to us. This is a very serious matter, and I want to deal with it in a very serious way. Laziness, I believe, is one of the great enemies of the Christian. We are spiritually lazy. We somehow think, I receive Jesus, I'm headed for heaven, and I'll go on just living the way I want to. And I'll tend, I, you know, I'll go to church when it, when it feels right. I'll, you know, read the Bible when, when I need it, you know. Pray as much as I ought to. That is, that's the way we naturally are. But that is not enjoying the living well of, of water spiritually. The wells up and satisfies the soul. There's no satisfaction in that. And he goes on and talks about so many other things. I just pique your interest in his worst sermons, and you'll love it. And I call you to think about what it looks like in your life to rely on the strength and power of the Holy Spirit to be so changed within that you have satisfaction for, for your soul that is found nowhere but in Christ and by the Spirit. Do you have that? We need to grow in that. We need, it's like eating food. You can't say, oh, I got there, so I stop, and then we starve. We can drift back into dryness and superficiality. Are we drunk with wine of the world or are we filled with the spirit in our daily lives and the way we live here's what it looks like just a a final biblical illustration uh, for you and it's the illustration of david and goliath 
when David goes, we can think, okay, I will wait. Let's see, you're getting weight wrong a little bit there. It's rely now. And I'll sit back and watch and see what God does. It's never sit back and watch what God does. It's step out because God is working. Not sit back, it's step out. When David goes and sees Goliath challenging the armies of Israel, he doesn't look at Goliath's size and at his own size. He doesn't look at Goliath's size and the uh, people around him in the army. He doesn't even look at Goliath's size and look at Saul, who's the head and shoulder of everybody else, and say, why isn't Saul getting out there? Because he's a big guy, too. may not be as big as Goliath, but he can do it. He doesn't think that way. If he thought that way, he would be cowering with everybody else in, front, in the face of this giant. And many times we look at the world and think it is so resistant, it's so powerful, it's so hard to share the gospel. People reject us and it seems to land on 10 ears and people don't understand Jesus and all he has to offer. So, God, I'm going to sit back and I'm going to see what you do. The way David did it was he looked at Goliath and he thought about God. And he said, who's this Philistine to insult God? Can't anybody step out and handle this? Because he's relying on the strength and power of God. He's experienced as a shepherd facing the lion and the bear. He knows that God can take Goliath. We look at the world and we should know all authority Jesus said is given to me. Therefore, go. And I am with you. It's not ready, set, go. You do it on your own. I am with you. And go out relying on the power of the Holy Spirit. Show them how he has changed your life. And have the courage to express the gospel before the world. And then, when you've stepped up to the Goliath, see what God will do. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I pray that you would give us understanding, not misunderstanding of these passages. Let our minds be clear to understand that to, to wait on the Holy Spirit now is not to wait for something in the future to happen but to rely upon him, to trust in him, and to step out in faith to see what you would do as we would share Christ. But Father, first, enable us to, to be filled with your spirit and so transformed that people see something different in us as we step out. We pray that we would have the peace that passes understanding in spite of the challenges of this fallen world. Because of your work in us. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.